Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll be reading the entire chapter this evening. Let's hear now the Word of God, beginning in verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Well, with God's help, we seek to continue our series on Christian love as described for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we find ourselves midway through verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Now we've said thus far that we're dealing here with not strictly speaking a definition of love, but a description. So there are various other passages that help us to understand love in the Scriptures, give us various paradigms. Think of John, what is it, chapter 15, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. There are many different ways in which we can study and even define love from various angles. And and we could try to bring them all together with a comprehensive definition. But that's not what we're doing in this chapter. And that's not what Paul is doing. He's bringing to bear certain aspects of love that are vital for the church in Corinth to understand in the midst of of their own situation. As you read the epistle of 1 Corinthians, you can see clearly that there is a lack of love. There's disunity and quarrels and rivalry and all kinds of problems in the life of the church. And people trying to one-up the other person and competing and so on. And so the Apostle Paul, using pastoral wisdom here, is bringing out the necessity of love that that true love for God and love for others is an essential mark of a true Christian. It really summarizes the entire list of duties that are comprised and included in the law of God. The Christian life can be summed up in love. If you don't have love, 
Love for God, love for others. If you don't have the love that's described here, you don't have anything. You're bankrupt. You've got nothing. You don't have Christ. You don't have salvation. You don't have the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So he's bringing this to bear. And in verse 4, we saw earlier in our series that he says that love suffers long and is kind. Now this first reference to love we saw speaks of the evil that we receive from others. So we're in a situation we receive evil from other people. Other people are evil towards us. Love suffers that evil, endures that evil, is patient, and remains kind. The second reference here, love does not envy, speaks of good things that other people have. Not evil that they're doing to me, but good things that they have which I don't. And so, I may be tempted, whereas I might retaliate against the person that's, that's being evil toward me. Okay? Now, it's a different situation. The person I'm interacting with has something good that I want, and I'm bitter about that. And so, I'm tempted toward envy here, and I resent the good that somebody else has that I don't have. Then we go to the third phrase here. Love does not parade itself. We're going to look at this in detail this evening. Obviously, you can see that from the sermon title in the bulletin. But parading ourselves involves a situation where we've got the goods. We've got the good thing. We've got it. It's not something somebody else has that we wish we had and we resent them. It's not something evil that we have that we wish we didn't have. It's a situation where we have the good thing. We have it. And we show it off. And then he follows that up with a very, very much related phrase, is not puffed up. So the thing that we have causes us to be puffed up in our view of ourselves and to showcase that good thing to others. And this really involves the inward and outward aspects of pride, the sin of pride. So internally, when we have these good things, we're puffed up in our view of ourselves. Puffed up with pride. And that inward pride manifests itself. One of the ways it manifests itself is in then vaunting ourselves, as the King James says, or parading ourselves, parading the good thing that we've got so that everybody else can see. So there's the internal root of being puffed up and the external fruit of parading ourselves, and that really is the, the two sides of the same coin of pride. So this, this Lord's Day evening, God willing, we're going to consider parading ourselves as being inconsistent with Christian love, and then next time around, we're going to consider, in a way, pride itself, that puffed up view of ourselves that is the root cause of this sin of parading ourselves. Now, what does it mean to parade yourself? What does that mean? And at face value, the translation we have is extremely helpful for the preacher because it, it takes away a lot of the, the work. To vaunt yourself, you, I mean, we don't use that word a lot, the King James word vaunt, but to parade yourself, I think we can see pretty obviously what that means. It means to boast, it means to show off, it means like if you're playing sports and you gloat or boast, you, you know, somebody might say, well, you're being a hot dog, that kind of thing. Or if you hit a home run and you flip the bat, there are all these manifestations of boasting and showing off and uh, self-promotion, self-display. We talk about in our culture, culture, virtue signaling, where we say or do things to kind of evoke a response. Oh yeah, you're, you're saying the right thing. You're on the right side of this or that issue. Um, it can be manifested in, in a lack of modesty, not just in terms of clothing, but in terms of the way we present ourselves. And we'll look at some of the examples of this. In fact, let's think of some of them. What are some of the things that we might parade about ourselves? Well, this type of self-parading really revolves around self, or as I've said before, idolatry. Idolatry. It's about me, myself, and I. And so we parade in this way. We say, 
I am. We want, to, we, we want to take pride in and parade who and what we are. We define ourselves we, in a narcissistic way. We want everybody to look at us. We want to grab people's attention. We want everybody to see this status symbol of our wealth or of our career attainments or of our physical youth and bodily appearance. This is who I am. I, I want everybody to see that uh, PhD on my wall or whatever. Look at me. Here, here's who and what I am, and I'm going to put that on display so everybody can see that. Or it's displaying what I have. We parade what we have. We take pride in possessions, and we, as I mentioned, a status symbol. We want to let everybody know just how many zeros there are uh, to the left of the decimal in our paycheck. And, and so we can manifest this in a variety of different ways. And we've got to be careful. It's not always easy to identify the ways in which people do this or whether they're trying to do it. There are so many different factors of cultural sensitivity and awareness that we need to police ourselves. We need to be careful that we're not uncharitable toward people Uh, oh, there's a Mercedes in the parking lot, but at least it's 10 years old and that kind of thing. We need to be careful, but we can parade what we have. We can parade what we can do, what we're able to do. Self-confidence, self-reliance. The prophet Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 9, verse 23, "...let not the wise man glory in his wisdom." nor the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. So what it's saying here is, especially don't glory in your might, in your power, in your abilities, in your gifts, in your skills. We can easily do that. We glory in the things that we're able to do that maybe other people are not able to do. We can also parade what we plan to do, what we shall do. James, famously, James chapter 4 talks about even Christians who boast they're going to do this, that, and the other in the future. They should say if the Lord wills, but they're just boasting self-confidently about the future, about what they're planning to do, what they're going to do. We can parade what we've done, accomplishments that we've achieved and we can parade these things. And Nebuchadnezzar, look at this great Babylon that I have constructed. We can, we can parade these things rather than saying like Psalm 22, the, the godly Christian and the godly Spirit-filled church says He has done it. They look at what Christ has done, but instead we parade, instead of parading the cross and what Christ has done, we parade what we've done, the accomplishments that we've achieved. There are so many things. We can parade what we know. We can parade what we know. Here's everything that we know. 1 Corinthians, we'll look at this in a second, but 1 Corinthians 8 verses 1 and 2 says that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge. There's a certain kind of knowledge that puffs up. Paul says he who thinks he knows what he needs to know knows nothing. There's always more to learn. We should be humbled. The more we learn, the more we realize we have more to learn. The the more Reformation Heritage books that you read, the more you see other books in the footnotes that you haven't read. And I think that's by design. Dr. Beakey's trying to sell more books. But the fact is that the more you know, the more you realize you you haven't even begun to understand even the basics. You have so much more to learn. We can, we can take pride and parade our knowledge. So these are some of the things that we need to be careful about. This is what it means to parade ourselves, to boast and show off what we've got. Second question, what are some biblical examples of this sin of parading ourselves? What are some biblical examples? Well, one I think that's helpful, 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 16 This describes a man named Jehu that God has raised up to bring judgment upon the house of Ahab and to slaughter the house of Ahab. And God raises him up and he's a very zealous man to get the job done. And in many ways that's good. God called him to do this. 
but we see something of his self-parading attitude here in 2 Kings chapter 10 and verse 16. He's talking to Jehonadab, this other individual that he, he rides up in his chariot. He meets with this guy and he says, verse 16, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot. So he's saying, look, God's called me to wreck shop in the house of Ahab and we're going to just destroy and slaughter all of these idolaters. Dude, this is amazing. You've got to see this. Jump on, into my chariot. You've got to see my zeal for the Lord. I mean, I'm on fire for the Lord. I'm zealous and look at what we're doing. And you can see that. We can easily fall into that parading our own zeal as if we're, we're the, you know, we're the be-all, end-all. Hezekiah, another biblical example, 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 13. This is after God extended Hezekiah's life for, was it 15 years? Healed him of the deadly sore and uh, delivered him from the Assyrian army. So Hezekiah is riding high on the deliverance of the Lord and multiple areas of his life. 2 Kings 20, verse 13, uh, we're told that when the Babylonians sent an envoy to express their joy at the fact that he had been healed of the sickness, we're told Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. And so he put it all on display. God's blessing in his life, rather than discreetly and modestly uh, veiling these things, he showcased them to the Babylonians. This, This is a classic case of immodesty, of indiscretion, of parading oneself. And we're told that God used the the blessing and the deliverance in Hezekiah's life in this situation to test him. And he failed the test. He paraded himself. And as is often the case, when we parade something that God has given us in our lives, we should not be surprised if the thing that we're parading is taken away. Because God then judges Hezekiah and he says, because you've done this, it's the Babylonians that I'm going to raise up to bring judgment upon Judah and to take all of these things that they've seen back to Babylon. So God says, if if you parade these things, don't be surprised if you lose these things. And that is often the case. We see another example of this in the New Testament, Acts chapter 12, verse 21 and following. We're told here that Herod, the king, after he had put James, the son of Zebedee, to death, and he put Peter in prison and was persecuting the church, the Lord released Peter from prison by way of an angel, but then we're told, subsequent to this, Acts 12.21, so on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them, that is, to the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now, it's not wrong that he wore royal apparel. The fact is, he was a royal monarch. He was a king. The Bible doesn't condemn him. And I don't think we should condemn people like the President of the United States for traveling in a certain type of jet, riding around in a certain type of limousine, wearing a certain type of clothing. There, there is something of dignity in those who hold civil office. And uh, Solomon was arrayed beautifully. Jesus talks about that. So that wasn't the problem. Although, again, if we're not Solomon or Herod or, you know, we're not in that position and we're just using our wardrobe to showcase and attract attention and, wow, look at that person walking down the street, that could be a problem. But for Herod, it was really his place and calling to, to catch people's attention. So they know there's the king. So if they see everything, okay, there he is. There's the king in his royal robes. There's something, uh, I think, uh, good about that in a sense. But then, notice what happens. Then the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. So they're giving Him divine praise. The voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately, 
an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died, but the word of God grew and multiplied. So Herod's eaten by worms. Why? He didn't say, my voice is the voice of a God, not of a man. But you see here the sin of omission that takes place is an aspect of this sin of parading ourselves. If other people parade us and we don't adequately acknowledge the glory of God and humble ourselves, if other people are parading us and praising us and giving us undue praise and we don't step in and and qualify that or say something here and give glory to God, then we've paraded ourselves. We're complicit, in other words. It's a sin of omission, but it's essentially the same type of sin. You see again an example in 1 Timothy 2 verse 9. 1 Timothy 2 verse 9. Paul's writing to Timothy, who's pastoring the believers in Ephesus at this time. And he's talking about the gatherings of the church and men lifting up holy hands and praying. And he says, verse 8, men need to be careful when they lift up holy hands to pray. In fact, they should be holy hands. So he's emphasizing men need to be holy, especially, and they, they need to not have wrath or doubting. But then he addresses some specific issues for the women in the congregation. He says, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now the point there is, not, not in such a way as to attract attention to yourself, right? The point here is not, well, you can't have pearls or something like that, or you, you can only buy clothing that's at a certain cost. It can't be costly clothing, can't be over a certain amount of money. No, it's saying don't dress to try to get people's attention, especially in the life of the church, right? So the glory of the church is Christ. We want to give Christ all the glory and honor. It's like a wedding where you have the bride and everybody stands up and looks at the bride and she's coming down the aisle and she has everybody's attention and rightly so. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that cultural tradition. She has everybody's attention. But in the life of the church and really in all areas of life, but especially in the life of the church at a prayer meeting, if that's what Uh, Paul's describing here with the men lifting up their hands in the worship of God, especially uh, we need to be careful that what we're wearing doesn't draw attention to us. Whether it be immodest and showing things off or whether it just be in general, uh, we got to be careful about that. Uh, In fact, one of the the words here, and I, I, I can't remember which of the words, but you'd know it if you have the King James in front of you. One of the words means shame face it. So in other words, it means humble. That we're not showcasing ourselves, but uh, trying, you know, distracting people, but instead we dress in a way that leaves the focus on Christ. I mean, imagine if you're at a wedding and the bride has just entered the room and she's about to take her first steps down the aisle, and then some other woman jumps up into the aisle and starts, you know, uh, vaunting around and parading herself. You know, you can imagine uh, that the bride would be rightly jealous of that type of behavior. Well, Jesus, the bridegroom, He's the focus of the spiritual wedding and of the house of God. And he's a jealous God. So there's an example. Again, very important for us just to to be able to culturally apply these principles and understand the rationale. Uh, The Bible is not against beautiful women. The Bible talks about beautiful women, handsome men. You can read all about it, all these different Bible stories. But the fact is that especially when we're in worship and just in general, we've got to be careful we're not you know, attracting undue attention and distracting people from the glory of Christ himself. So these are some biblical examples that we find. Thirdly, we ask the question, how were the Corinthians parading themselves? In other words, why is this relevant in the Corinthian church? And you can see a number of things. Let me just point out a few here. First, in Corinth you have this rivalry, this competition that's taking place among the members of the church. You see it in 1 Corinthians, I mean really it's, it's throughout the book, but especially at the very outset in chapter 1, after Paul just begins greeting them and encouraging them in the faith, chapter 1 verse 12, 
he, he's introduced the idea that they have these divisions among them. And he says, now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, that's Peter, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? So he's talking about the people that say, I'm of Christ, right? We're the sect that's of Christ. Well, is that implying the other people are not of Christ? You've got the, the, the Paulites, the Apollosites, the Cephasites, and oh yeah, we're the true Christians, by the way. So you have this kind of rivalry and competition, sectarianism in the church. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? You who say you're of Paul. Really? Paul can't save you. Paul's just pointing you to Christ who was crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So people potentially were saying, look, I was converted under Paul's ministry. Paul's the greatest preacher there is. Paul baptized me. I remember that wonderful occasion when Paul baptized me. Oh, who baptized you? You see, they're they're comparing. It's like, oh no, I was baptized by Peter or I once heard Peter preach when he came through town, or whatever it is. Apollos, oh, he's mighty in the Scriptures. Paul, how about Apollos? And they're debating you know, who baptized them or who's the best preacher. And it's, it's very, very destructive in the life of the church, this sort of competition and rivalry. At the end of chapter 1, he refutes it from the nature of salvation itself. He says, verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world, the things that don't have anything to vaunt and flaunt and boast and parade. He's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the mighty and so on. The base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are why? Why, does, why has He saved anybody? Here's why. So that no flesh should glory or boast or parade themselves in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let Him glory in the Lord. So if we're going to boast, if we're going to parade ourselves, Let's parade the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's boast in Him. Let's talk about what He's done, who He is, how He chose us and saved us, though we're despised and base and foolish. That's what Paul is saying to confront this spirit of rivalry. You can read about similar things in chapter 3. And he refutes it in much the same way. We don't need to get into that. Now, Paul says something in chapter 2 as well along these lines of competition and rivalry. He sought to set an example to the believers. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. So in Corinth, they would have had a certain desire and appetite to hear Greek rhetorical devices and this sort of philosophical methodology. Perhaps Apollos, as a Greek-speaking Jew, was able to do this. He was mighty in the Scriptures. Nothing wrong with him doing that. But the point is, Paul identified the sectarian spirit and he came to them specifically covering his glory, veiling the glory of his supreme intellect. Paul was highly educated among both the Gentiles and the Jews. He could have run circles around anybody on on many different relevant topics. But he veiled, he veiled that glory. For I determined to know, not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It was a plain preaching style. It was not embellished. It was not shined and buffed. And it was just Paul was being real in his own weakness. And he just spoke the words and explained the Word of God to them. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, so God gets the glory. So the competition and the rivalry that's taking place 
Paul tries to set an example of modesty in his gifts. You see another example of this in, in Corinth. Chapter 5, where there's immorality in the church. The kind of immorality, verse 1, that says that even the Gentiles would not even dare to name this particular perversion. Paul does name it. A man has his father's wife. So there's some type of incestuous, immoral relationship here. But Paul's saying even the Gentiles uh, just, it turns their stomach to even think about it or talk about it. And yet it's happening in the church. But notice how the Corinthians are responding. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And so they're not taking that incestuous, perverse relationship in the membership, in the life of the church seriously. Verse 6, you're glorying or you're boasting, or you're parading yourself about the fact that you're so lenient to allow these kind of things to go on, your glorying is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So he's saying this is dangerous, and you're strutting around virtue signaling about how generous and how loving and how lenient and receptive you are. Look at our ministry. Look how broad. Look, look, how, look at all the ministry we're doing to so many different varieties of people and, and uh, we're so compassionate to this person. Virtue signaling, be careful of that. They were strutting that and boasting in that. You see it as well in chapter 8. I already referred to this, but uh, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So there's a controversy in the church, an ethical religious controversy in terms of to what extent can you eat meat that has previously been consecrated for idolatrous purposes? Can you buy this in the meat market? Uh, Do you need to look at the the label and make sure that this is approved non-idolatrous meat? Or can you just eat it? Because really, idols don't even exist. They're just demonic deceptions. There's a debate in the life of the church. And Paul says there's a right answer to the question of the extent to which we should abstain from idolatry and things that are going to stain our hands with idolatry. But at the same time, an idol really is nothing. And so if that's the meat in the supermarket, just buy the meat and don't worry about it. Uh, And and then he gets into issues of conscience. But the point is, some people are saying, yeah, we've got the right answer and you all have the wrong answer. And they're bludgeoning each other with this knowledge. And they're using it to, to puff themselves up and show some kind of superiority over the other people rather than to, yes, teach and instruct in a gracious way and share thoughts and have dialogue as the Lord leads each one of us. But they're not seeking to edify their brethren and edify the church, but they're seeking to stand out and make the theological all-star team. And so that's what he's saying. That's not the kind of knowledge you need. That's a knowledge that puffs up. Chapter 11, we don't have time to get into chapter 11, but just in in brief terms, it seems that not only were the, the women who are prophesying and praying in church. Uh, Chapter 14, Paul says they they shouldn't actually be doing that. They should be silent in church. But in the midst of their doing this, they're not covering their head. There are a lot of debates about that and about the idea of this symbol of power on the head in submission to their husband. But part of what's going on here, I think, part of the equation of what's happening in chapter 11 is that these women are vaunting and flaunting themselves in a certain kind of way. You can see Paul talks about a woman being the glory of man. Again, this is a cursory uh, summary of this point I'm making. Don't think that it's attempting to be exhaustive. But we're told that the woman is the glory of the man. 
Man is the image and glory of God, verse 7, but woman is the glory of the man. The woman, in other words, has that unique aesthetic quality in terms of mankind that we think of beauty and we ascribe it to women. We think of women in terms of beauty. Women, God has made women to have a certain beauty and glory about them. There's no sense pretending that's not the case, not saying men can't be handsome and all of that, but, but there's something aesthetic, something unique and beautiful about the appearance of the woman as God made her. And so the, the woman is the glory of mankind in terms of outward beauty. And we're told toward the end of the chapter, in verse 15, that the woman's hair is her glory. So the woman is the apex of human beauty, and her hair is this glory covering. Uh, The word that's used for her hair as her covering is not actually the word for a veil over the head or over the face mentioned earlier, but it's a word that's elsewhere translated a vesture, a robe. This is a glory adornment. And he's saying that their long hair is an adornment. It's glorious. And the angels in Isaiah 6, when they're in the presence of God, they cover that glory. They cover their head, their, their face, their feet. They're not distracting people with their outward glory. And Paul's saying there's something unique. Again, part of what he's saying, there's something unique for the woman, her beauty, the beauty of her hair. And so he's speaking of these coverings that need to be there in worship. And we could debate practical application today. But the point is, we want to be like the angels because of the angels. In in accord with the example of the angels, we want to cover our glory and not do anything that's going to distract. When these women in Corinth took off their veil, took off their head covering and their flowing hair, which was their glory, this, this was a distraction. And there are probably many different applications we can make of that today. They also gloried and boasted in their gifts. You can read it in chapter 12 and in chapter 14. This is a problem. Parading ourselves, especially in the church and in the worship of God. Now, fourth question, what is the root cause of parading ourselves? And we've already said that. It's pride. It's the fact that we're puffed up in ourselves. We're puffed up in our view of self, and therefore we want to strut self and show off self. We all have that desire. Uh, You know, we, we can... Those of us that don't have long flowing hair, we have other things that we might, you know, things we've done, things we've achieved. We just slip in that comment. It's so easy to do. I've done it. Perhaps you've done it. It's, It's this puffed up spiritual or carnal pride. Really, what's the difference? It's pride. And at the same time, it's interesting to me as I examine myself and as I look at this phenomenon in the world, I think it's often the case that there's another root cause, not just being puffed up in our view of ourselves in these certain areas of strength, but I think it's often the case that we puff ourselves up and parade ourselves in one area because we might perceive an insecurity or a lack in another area. In other words, we're trying to compensate. We see some things in our lives where other people are bettering us and besting us, and we feel insecure. We feel like, well, we need to be superior in something, so if somebody else is going to be superior in this area, then we're going to be superior in these other areas. And this is the case sometimes that when it comes to showing off our body or our PhD or whatever, it can be that deep down we don't feel accepted. We don't feel that we're a meaningful, contributing part of society. We don't feel like we really fit in. We don't feel accepted. And so it's very important that we understand the root cause here. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 15, If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? So the foot says, Here I am, down on the ground, I'm, I'm getting dirty, wearing, the, you know, wearing this sandal. And, and uh, you know, the foot feels like, well, you know, all the exciting things are happening way up there, and here I am down at ground zero. Christ has purchased every member of the body. He's put every part where it needs to be. He loves every part. The Father accepts every part, every believer in His beloved Son. And He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And He says that of every believer. 
So you don't have to feel like you have to wow people, like you have to get everybody's attention so that people can appreciate this thing about you because they apparently either you or they or both don't appreciate some other thing in your life. The fact is Jesus gives us beauty for ashes. Jesus makes us beautiful. Jesus accepts us as beautiful. Read the Song of Solomon as your relationship with Christ, what Jesus thinks of you. Read it. Think about it. When he says that you are his undefiled one, his spouse, his sister, there's no spot in you. He loves you. You're beautiful. He's washing you with water by the word, taking away the blemishes, giving you strength in one area and another. And as we sang in our Psalm, Psalm 138, Selection B, actually a couple things I want to point out in that Psalm. Stanza 4, I'm just going to read it from the Psalm book because that's what was going through my mind when we were singing it. The Lord, although exalted high on lowly ones, will keep his eyes. We don't need to attract the eyes of other people. We don't need to impress other people. Who gives a rip what these other people think? Uh, You know, if, if you sometimes, I know this is the case with some family members in my own family, uh, extended family, uh, growing up, that uh, they didn't have both parents. They didn't have that investment of love and acceptance by their parents in their life. And so they always felt like they had to wow and, and, and get people's attention. That's not the case. God is exalted on high, but on lowly ones. Humble yourself and He will look upon you with, with delight and desire and joy and acceptance. But those who are proud and haughty, He knows them only from afar. So the real recognition the real acceptance that you need is God's delight in you for the sake of Christ. And when you have that, you don't need the other people's eyeballs fixed on you. You've got the eye of God Himself. And uh, there was something else, the last stanza, where it says in the last two lines, Your love, O Lord, forever stands. Leave not the works done by your hands. And I think at least part of the reference there is to us the children of God. We're the work of His hands. He will not leave us. He'll keep building us, sanctifying us, beautifying us in the beauty of holiness, that meek and gentle and quiet spirit that is precious in the sight of God in Christ. We don't need to seek to attract attention. We have all the attention we need from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Fifthly, how is this sin specifically contrary to Christian love? How is it specifically contrary to Christian love? Well, in terms of our love for God, it's obvious that God is jealous when we seek to distract from His glory. He will not share His glory with anybody else. We see that throughout the book of Isaiah. When the angels come in, the glorious, sinless angels are around the throne in God's temple. In Isaiah chapter 6, again, let's use them as an example. That's what Paul says to do. Because of the angels, look at what they're doing They could be showing off and strutting their stuff, but they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're focused on God's glory. They're focused on God's character. God looms large, and and they and whatever ego, it's small. God is great and greatly to be praised. So if we love God, we're going to view God as this just infinitely massive, glorious being. And there's just no room for us. Compared to God, we're a drop in the bucket, dust in the balance. We're less than nothing. And we find our greatest value and joy in being less than nothing and just reveling in the glory of God. So to boast and vaunt and parade ourselves in God's presence really doesn't show love for God. In terms of love for others... Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5.26. Verse 26. I think this is very helpful for us here. Galatians 5.26. After talking about the fruits of the flesh or the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit, he says, let us not become conceited. King James is helpful here. Let us not desire vainglory. And the word here really is vainglory. It's the word for emptiness And it's the word for glory. Let us not desire vain glory, the fleeting attraction and 
you know, the impression that we make on other people, wow, they're really impressed at me or whatever. Don't be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. So you see the relationship between parading ourselves and, and envying others. When we parade ourselves, we're actually provoking other people to envy. So if I'm showing off my money, maybe the fact is somebody else who has less money, they see that and that causes them to be less content with what God has given them. If I'm showing, whatever I'm showing off, it can cause covetousness or lust or provoke them to envy and say, well, I wish I was like that and I'm not. And so well, I guess I'm just not much of anything. And, and then they envy the person or maybe then they pivot to boast in another area of their life to compensate for what you have that they don't. So really we're creating stumbling blocks all across the landscape when we parade ourselves in any way. And we do parade ourselves. I'm not standing up here saying, hey, I never do this. I need to repent. I'm preaching to myself as well. But we need to, we need to be careful. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And when we tempt people to envy and we, in a sense, steal their contentment, we're stealing the great gain, the value of godliness with contentment. Well, so much more could be said, but the last thing we're going to see here this evening is how must we overcome this sin? We need to have the mind of Christ. Okay? Jesus emptied Himself, made Himself nothing took the form of a bondservant, veiled His glory, humbled Himself, humiliated Himself. Jesus in this life, who is our great example and our Savior, has set the tone. Philippians 2 describes it. Has set the tone for our attitude in this world. We ought not to count whatever it is that we can lay hold of as something to be grasped and paraded. For Jesus, it was the fact that He's fully God. He didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, something to be showcased during his life of humiliation. He left that parading and showcasing, if you will, in a way. He left it to his glorification when he shines like the sun. And we need to have the same attitude here in this pilgrimage, here in this valley of tears, here in this wilderness, here in the Christian life, following in his steps, from suffering unto glory. There will come a day when every believer will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their heavenly Father. And our beauty will be perfect and it will reflect His perfect beauty and God has designed it in such a way that it will just enhance the beauty of everyone and everything and of Christ and it will just resound exponentially to the glory of God for all eternity. But here and now, we need the mind of Christ. We need to contemplate the character of God. We need to contemplate the way that He saved us, the way that He's humbled us, the way that He has chosen the foolish and the base and the undeserving things of the world. God must become big and we must become small. In addition, we need to consider one another. Hebrews 10.24 says in connection with coming to church, We need to consider one another to stir them up to love and good works. So we don't want to provoke them to envy, but we want to provoke them to love and good works. Now, in order to do that, I mean, how are you going to determine how best to provoke people to the right thing rather than the wrong thing? Well, you need, and I need, to have a proactive sensitivity to how others interpret what we wear, what we do, what we say. And that's not easy, but we need, to th- we need to think about that. Is there something that I'm going to say about something in my life, some detail that I'm going to reveal that's going to be a stumbling block for somebody else? Is there something I'm going to wear or something I'm going to do? We need to be proactively sensitive and consider one another so that we're provoking and sort of pushing the right buttons, if you will, and not the wrong buttons. We need to do our best. It's not going to be an exact science, but we need to increase and improve in that area. And when in doubt, leave it out. When in doubt, just, you know, leave it out. Also, finally, maintain charity. I just want to close with this because any moral principle can go off the rails very easily and turn into some kind of uh, Amish, Pharisaical type of uh, 
lifestyle. So we need to maintain charity in all of this. We need to be careful that we're not overreacting, that we're not easily provoked, that we're not just assuming false motives about somebody who's saying or doing or wearing a certain thing. Um, we need to be strict for ourselves. Right? That's the only way holiness is going to improve in the life of the church. You can only go so far with sermons and with coming alongside, and those things are important. But we need to be strict on ourselves. We need to think more proactively and considerately about the decisions we make, the way we present ourselves, and we, we need to be strict on ourselves and gracious to other people. That's not to say we're glorying like the Corinthians and, and all hell breaks loose in the church, but it's saying, as a general rule, let's be strict for ourselves, gracious to other people. We don't want to go on a hunting expedition. I mean, we could go through the Bible and find Moses saying that Moses is the meekest man on the face of the earth, or 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, I worked harder than all the other apostles. And then he gives glory to God. And we could say, yeah, interesting, Paul. Of course, you tack that on at the end, that, you're, that it was God working in you. But why did you have to mention that you worked harder than the other apostles? We could begin to accuse him of being a narcissist. And we can poison the well and demonize just about anybody that we want to demonize. So let's not do that. Let's be strict in applying this to ourselves Let's not go on a hunting expedition, but let's seek to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord that He might lift us up. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for Your Holy Spirit, apart from whom we as mere natural men could never understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. We pray that Your Holy Spirit within each believer here would be actively leading and guiding us to produce the fruit of the Spirit, to walk keeping in step with the Spirit, that we would be filled with the Spirit of joy and peace, and especially of love, that we would manifest our love for you and love for others by seeking to keep and obey the principles of this passage. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.